everyone, and hello to some new people that I don't think I've met before. This is a rare occasion for me. I speak here about one time out of every seven or eight, it seems, anymore. I've been on the road quite a bit. At last campaign, I think I had been speaking in some other church uh, or some other pulpit, I think 15 different Sabbaths since January 1st this year already. So with about another 15 or so to go between now and the end of the year, it's going to be a very, very busy year and a lot of travel. The other evening out at Emerald Bay where I live, there is a kind of a retirement center, retirement community, a lot of people there, and some of them were sitting around, and a lady had had a couple of free too many to drink, and that's always a bad time because people want to ask you a religious question. And they love to ask a kind of a religious question when they kind of get in their cups, and that's when, you know, these secret thoughts and all these things can come out. Gentleman sitting there piped up and began to put in his two bits worth, and he came up with a statement that I think I've heard hundreds of times in my life. It went something like this. Well, now, I'm a Catholic. He obviously was a Methodist or whatever, and they know who I am. And he said, so you have to understand that that I'm different than you people, but I don't think that makes any difference because difference because I think we're all going in the same direction. We just get there by different routes. I've heard people say that time and time again. Well, we're all trying to get to the same place, but we're just going there by different routes. I've even heard people get this ecumenism in God's true church. I've heard expressed oftentimes just in casual conversations over luncheons or riding down the road, people will begin to say, well, I think that there are good Christian people in practically any organization. As a matter of fact, uh, I get to thinking about so-and-so and this person and that and some of these people out here in the other church and some of the evil things. And about 20 minutes later, you catalog some of the horrible things a lot of ministers have done or people high up in the hierarchy. And furthermore, I think that there are a lot of Baptists and Methodists. I'd just soon send my kid over there to Greenacres. I mean, I think there are a lot of people out here in the Sunday-keeping churches that are going to be in the kingdom of God just as well as I think some of us are going to be. I've heard that expression time and time and time again. Now, is that true? If that is true, I sometimes wonder what in the world I'm doing here, because, you know, it is difficult to keep the Sabbath in a Sunday-oriented world. It was difficult for me as a boy growing up to have to shun all of the really desired activities in grade school junior high and high school and to be kept at home on Saturday and not to be able to go out for various sports and so on and the main things that happen in high school are on Friday evening and oftentimes on Saturday and maybe a bus trip would take you to some other town for a football or a basketball or a baseball game and to just be left out of all of that really annoyed me a great deal. Is all of this ecumenism, this spirit of, well, we're all going by a different route to arrive ultimately at the same destination really true? I want to talk today about a thing called the mark of the beast. I'm going to read quickly the scriptures in the Bible, and there are only a number of them here. I think, uh, let's see, two, four, five, six, seven, about eight places in the entire Bible where that expression is used. And we find the first place is in the 13th chapter of Revelation, and beginning in verse 15 and 16. I'll just read the cogent ones now, and we'll come back and go over it a little more detail a little later. He, this lamb-like creature that spoke like a dragon, had power to give life unto the image of the beast, verse 15 of chapter 13 of Revelation, that the image of the beast should both speak and cause that as many as would not worship the image of the beast should be killed. And he causeth all, both small and great, 
rich and poor, free and bond. So it cuts right across the stratum of any society, has nothing to do with nobility or poverty. To receive a mark in their right hand or in their foreheads, and that no man might buy or sell save he had the mark or the name of the beast or the number of his name. He had the mark he couldn't buy he, he could buy and sell, or the name of the beast, or the number of his name. Three things, really. Here is wisdom, let him that has understanding count the number of the beast, for it is the number of a man. And his number is six hundred, three score, and six. Everybody knows that six 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 is the number of the beast and the number of that mark of the beast. In the next chapter, beginning in the latter part, it talks about Babylon the great is fallen, and a third angel followed, saying with a loud voice, verse 9, If any man worship the beast and his image, and receive his mark in his forehead or in his hand, the same shall drink of the wine of the wrath of God. Now, God hates whatever this is, doesn't he? The Bible is not equivocating on that score. Whatever this thing is that people receive, the mark, the number, or the name of this beast, whatever that is, God hates it. It makes him furious because you just don't receive punishment, but you receive the wrath of God. Now, I know there have been many times in my life when God has been irritated at me. There may have been times when God has been downright angry. I hope I have never gotten to the point where I have experienced a part of his wrath. I just cannot imagine anything more frightening than to have Almighty God so angry and so wrathful at me as a human being that he was just anxious to do me in and to make sure that he punished me in some way because nothing is going to withhold the wrath of God from falling where he decides to direct it. The same shall drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is poured out without mixture into the cup of his indignation. That's a very metaphorical statement and yet one that really just goes on to compound the anger that he experienced. And he, this person receiving that mark, or worshiping the beast and or his image, remember, shall be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment, the smoke that marked where they were tormented, not their torment, remember, it isn't their torment that goes up and on and on forever and ever and ever, but the smoke of their torment ascends up forever and ever, and they have no rest day nor night who worship the beast and his image and whosoever receives the mark of his name. In exact juxtaposition to that, notice the next verse. Here is the patience of the saints. Here are two opposites revealed. Here are they that keep the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus. Two opposites. The beast, his image, his number, his name, and his mark, and the commandments of Almighty God. Two opposites. In the 15th chapter, in the second verse, we'll just skip along with the ones that are cogent, as I said, and we'll come back a little later on. And I saw as it were a sea of glass mingled with fire, and them that had gotten the victory over the beast. Something you fight, something you resist, something you reject, something that, that apparently attempts to overcome you, to overpower you, to enslave you, to draw you into its system. They had gotten the victory over the beast. Now, when you get the victory, you know you've been in a fight. You don't go out and win a victory when there's no race, when there's no contest, when there's no competition. When you receive a medal or a badge or 
uh, first prize or whatever for a victory. You know, you've been in a, a contest of some sort. These people had gotten the victory over the beast and over his image and over his mark and over the number of his name. Stand on the sea of glass, a translucent sea of glass depicted as if before God's throne, having the harps of God and then follows the song of Moses and so on that they are singing. The next time we read of this is in the 16th chapter, the second verse. Here are the great plagues of Almighty God, the seven trumpet plagues being poured out. Verse 2, the first went and poured out his vial upon the earth, and there fell a noisome and grievous sore, like a carbuncle or like boils or like maybe open lesions of some sort, upon the men which had the mark of the beast and upon them which worshipped his image. Something they consciously do. They consciously are aware of the fact that they are bowing down to and worshiping this image of the beast, and they willingly are receiving this mark. And then it follows along with the other trumpet plagues. In Revelation 19 and verse 20 is the next time we find the mark of the beast listed anywhere in the Bible. Revelation 19 and verse 20, And the beast was taken, this is just after the return of Christ, when he actually lays hands upon the beast and the false prophet, and with him the false prophet that wrought miracles before him, with which he deceived them, that had received the mark of the beast, and them that worshipped his image. These both were cast alive into a lake of fire burning with brimstone. Horrifying penalty for worshipping the image of the beast, receiving the mark of the beast, the number of his name. A horrifying penalty. In Revelation 20 and verse 4, the next and the final place in all the Bible where we read the expression about the mark of the beast. It says in verse 4 of Revelation 20, I saw thrones, and they sat upon them, and judgment was given unto them. And I saw the souls, the Greek word is suke, that means every living soul or living creature, the lives of them that were beheaded. It's as if in metaphor you see those human beings who were beheaded who died for the witness of Jesus and for the word of God, and which had not worshipped the beast, neither his image, neither had received his mark upon their foreheads or in their hands, and they lived and reigned with Christ a thousand years. So those who reject it, who refuse it, even at the cost of their own lives, will rule with Jesus Christ for a thousand years. Now, in order to understand what is the mark of the beast, you've got to understand what is the beast. And I'm not going to belabor that at great length because we do have a brochure on it and other sermons on it. But very quickly, let's go to Daniel, the second chapter, and refresh our memory. In Daniel, the second chapter, this is quite an extensive subject, and I'm only going to hit the high spots. We see the great vision that is now being revealed to Nebuchadnezzar. He had dreamed of the great image standing out on the plain, the Akkadian or the Babylonian plain, which in verse 32 was of gold the breast and arms of silver, the belly and thighs of brass, the legs of iron, the feet part of iron and part of clay. Daniel said to the king, You saw till a stone was cut out without hands, which smote the image upon his feet. The feet have ten toes, two feet standing astride, perhaps a different area, with ten digits on them. The feet were part of iron and part of clay, and break them to pieces. Then was the iron, the clay, and the brass, and the silver, and the gold, till the entire image toppled, and in this dream appeared to become just like chaff, and a wind came along and blew it all away like the summer threshing floor, and no place was found for them. And a stone that smote the image seemed to quiver and then become large and grow in his eyes as he saw this great vision until it was a huge mountain like Everest or larger and filled the whole earth. So he went on to tell him the meaning of the dream. And he said, Thou, O king, art a king of kings. Verse 37. Here's the interpretation. 
For the God of heaven has given you a kingdom, power, and strength, and glory. So king and kingdom are absolutely synonymous and interchangeable in biblical prophecy. The king and the kingdom were synonymous because it says in chapter 2, verse 38, Thou art, the last words, thou art this head of gold. After thee shall arise another kingdom inferior to thee. Again, you notice the proof king and kingdom are synonymous. And another third kingdom of brass, which shall bear rule over all the earth, and the fourth kingdom shall be as strong as iron, for as much as iron breaks in pieces and subdues all things, and as iron that breaks all these, shall it break in pieces and bruise. And whereas you saw the feet and toes, part of potter's clay and part of iron, the kingdom shall be divided. But there shall be in it of the strength of the iron, for as much as you saw the iron mixed with miry clay. And anyone who would be in a smelting business or perhaps working with a mold in metallurgy, and would get clay mixed in to iron that he was pouring into a mold, he knows that that would destroy whatever he's trying to, he's trying to you know, pour an anvil or an axe head or something. It would just about destroy it. So there is something that is very weak and something that is very strong, and the two are mixed together, but the mixture is not going to last very long. And as the toes of the feet were part of iron and part of clay, so the kingdom shall be partly strong and partly weak, as it should read in the margin. Not broken, but weak. It will be broken later. And whereas you saw iron mixed with miry clay, they shall mingle themselves with the seed of men. Intra-racial, intra-national cooperation in a conglomerate of nations numbering ten. Because it says in the days of these kings, the ten represented by the ten toes, shall the God of heaven set up a kingdom. And they shall not cleave one to another, which they do not very long, as it says in Revelation 17. Even as iron is not mixed with clay. And in the days of these kings shall the God of heaven set up a kingdom which shall never be destroyed, and the kingdom shall not be left to other people, but it shall break in pieces and consume all these kingdoms, and it shall stand forever. Now, even a very high school level, very unscholarly Bible help, like Halley's Bible Handbook, has this to say, about another prophecy we want to read right, right quickly in the seventh chapter of the book of Daniel, which bears on the same subject. Let's go to Daniel 7, and very quickly notice that there are four great beasts that are depicted here. We'll just read a few of them real quickly, beginning in verse 3. The four great beasts came up from the sea, different one from another. The first was like a lion, and had eagle's wings. And I've mentioned about the great lions that you can see in the Louvre and the British Museum on the Behistun Stone and some great rocks over there, plus the old uh, castles that guarded Esarhaddon or Ashurnazirpal or Ashurbanipal's palaces, ancient Assyrian and Babylonian kings. And you're all familiar with the Sphinx. And the Sphinx that guards the tombs of the pharaohs has the head of a man with a kind of a pharaoh's type of a desert headdress, but the body of a lion. So some of the various aspects of the cherubim were utilized by those ancient empires. The first was like a lion, and had eagle's wings. And I beheld till the wings thereof were plucked, and it was lifted up from the earth and made to stand upon the feet as a man, and a man's heart was given to it, reference to the seven years' insanity of Nebuchadnezzar, who rooted around in the backyard of his own castle, totally insane, while Daniel, for all practical purposes, was the ruler of the country. And Nebuchadnezzar was crazy when he finally was given his sanity and stood upon his feet and proclaimed that the true God was the great God. Then a man's heart was given to him. And behold, another beast, a second, like to a bear. Now, Medo-Persia, in the area between the Black and the Caspian Sea, which is today occupied by Ukraine and the Soviet Union, have always been in history, and it's interesting that even today, 
Oftentimes, you will see a magazine cover that will depict the Soviet Union as the Russian bear, as they say, because of two things. Number one, anciently, uh, that part of the world has been very heavily populated by bears and still is today. The Russian Tupolev, uh, think of something like an eight-engine turboprop a bomber, is called the bear, by the way. There's a bear bomber that is constantly uh, in surveillance off our own coast. And I want to read to you what just this one reference says, but just to make the statement right quickly in passing, that unanimously the biblical commentaries and the Bible histories and various eschatologists and various biblical historians, all sorts of books, it is not the private concept of the Church of God International that these four successive world-ruling empires represent in the image of Daniel 2 and the beasts of Daniel 7, Babylon, Persia, Greco-Macedonia, and Rome. That is universally understood, universally accepted and attested to by all biblical scholarship. I really don't even know whether the Roman Catholic Church disagrees with that. Their only argument is that they claim the 44th verse of, verse of Daniel 2, when the stone that smote the image on the feet became a great mountain and filled the whole earth, that to them is the Christianization of the ancient pagan Roman Empire, the ushering in of Pax Romana, and the Holy Roman Empire. So to them, the kingdom of heaven is on the earth in the uh, form of the Pope himself at Rome. And they think the Christianization of the ancient Roman Empire is the setting up of God's kingdom in a sense. The beast like a bear raised itself up on one side and had three ribs, which was Lydia, Babylon, and Egypt, in the mouth of it, between the teeth of it, and, this, and said, Arise, devour much flesh. After this I beheld, and lo, another like a leopard, which had the back upon the back of it four wings of a fowl, and this beast had four heads. Well, that was Ptolemy Soter and Laomedon and Seleucus Nicator, as well as Antipater of Macedonia, who succeeded Alexander the Great. And dominion was given to it. Now, the next creature is not like any kind of a living creature. But after this, he said, I saw in the night visions, and behold, a fourth beast, dreadful and terrible, and strong exceedingly, and it had great iron teeth, it devoured and break in pieces, and stamped the residue of the feet of it. And it was diverse from all the beasts or creatures that were before it, and it had ten horns. Comment from Halley's Handbook, page 346, on the four beasts, chapter 7. This is a continuation of the prophecy of chapter 2, which was uttered 60 years earlier. Two aspects of one grand scheme of history, four world empires, and then the kingdom of God. In chapter 2, these are represented by an image with a head of gold, a breast of silver, thighs of brass, and feet of iron, broken in pieces by a stone. In this chapter, these same four world empires, that is chapter 7, are represented as a lion, a bear, a leopard, and a terrible beast. These four world empires are commonly taken to be Babylon, Persia, Greece, and Rome, see under chapter 2, representing the period from Daniel to Christ. These beasts seem to form the basis of the imagery of the seven-headed, ten-horned beast of Revelation 13. That is the first beast of Revelation 13. I cite this merely to show you that it's not some strange doctrine of the Church of God International or the Worldwide Church of God, or before that the Radio Church of God, or my father Herbert W. Armstrong, to understand the meaning of these various successive world-ruling empires and the meaning of these beasts down in history, but is something that is known by most all biblical scholars. Now let's turn to Revelation, the 13th chapter, and notice beginning in verse 1, I stood upon the sand of the sea and saw a beast rise up out of the sea. Before you can understand what is the image of the beast, the mark of the beast, the number of the beast, and the name of the beast, and so on, you've got to know what is the beast. And this beast had seven heads and ten horns, 
and upon his horns ten crowns, and upon his heads the name of blasphemy. It was called holy. It was called the holy Roman Empire. And the beast which I saw was like unto a leopard, its whole, its whole, whole body or its overall aspect. The feet were as the feet of a bear, the mouth as the mouth of a lion, and the dragon, which is revealed in Revelation 12 and verse 9 to be Satan the devil, gave him his power and his seat and great authority. Satan the devil has incredible authority. He is called in 2 Corinthians 4, 4, the God of this world. And I saw one of his heads, as it were, wounded to death, and that is the destruction of Rome and the collapse of the Roman Empire in 476 A.D. And his deadly wound was healed, and that was in 554 A.D. by Belisarius, who worked under Justinian and went and sacked Carthage and put together the southern provinces of Italy again, and there was a restoration in 554. And all the world wondered after the beast, and they worshipped the dragon which gave power unto the beast, and I have a sermon tape on state worship and the worship of the beast you can have if you wish, and they worshiped the beast, saying, Who is like unto the beast? Who is able to make war with him? Real politics was refined by Adolf Hitler when in our lifetime, that is the lifetime of many of us in this room, a frenzied nation absolutely drenched Europe in blood because of the vicarious collective state worship of German people who bowed down to the great political, economic, military, industrial combine that Hitler put together in Germany. And it was state worship. There are plenty of pictures. I have one in there, which is a picture book that was put out by the Germans, about that thick of dozens of pictures. And you can look and actually see that there were women who would stand up in the little towns and villages where Hitler's open limousine would go through, and they would just glazed eyes and would literally pass out, just faint at sight of their Fuhrer. And if you've seen some of the Nazi party films and some of the documentaries like the Nuremberg rallies and so on that took place, this was state worship perfected in our lifetime by Adolf Hitler who effected a weak revival of the same system. They worshipped the beast saying, Who is like unto the beast who is able to make war with him? And it was given unto him a mouth speaking great things and blasphemy. That is that that mouth is infallible, that he thinks to change times and laws as the Bible says. And power was given unto him to continue forty and two months. Now, literally, in the end-time fulfillment, that's exactly three and one-half years. In the Middle Ages, that extended for 1,260 years. And he opened his mouth in blasphemy against God to blaspheme his name and his tabernacle and them that dwell in heaven, including the heavenly host, the uh, 24 elders and God's great archangels, as well as God the Father and Jesus Christ. Just in passing, I want you to notice something, because there are tens of millions of people and practically all of your Sunday morning evangelists who get on there and talk about Jesus and so on, believe in the rapture. Falwell does, all the Baptists do, the Methodists do, and so on. And the rapture supposes, of course, that all the saints are taken away when Jesus comes and sort of nearly misses the earth, and he comes first for his saints. And they're off up in heaven, then falls the terrible tribulation and the heavenly signs of the day of the Lord and the wrath of God and so on. Then Christ and the saints come down to the earth. What is this doing here? To him, to this great system, this great beast and the dragon, Satan the devil, which is over this beast, which is a politico and a military system, it was given unto him to make war with the saints and to overcome them. Are the saints on the earth? Are they vulnerable? 
Is Satan the devil able to get at them at the time of the end, at the time of the second coming of Jesus Christ? Yes, some of them. He's able to get at them and overcome them, meaning kill them, put them to death. And power was given him over all kindreds and tongues and nations, a total, collective, all-encompassing term, meaning every race, every nation on this earth. And all that dwell upon the earth shall worship him, whose names are not written in the book of life of the Lamb, slain from the foundation of the world. If any man will hear, have an ear to hear, let him hear. He that leads into captivity shall go into captivity. He that kills with a sword must be killed with a sword. Here is the patience and the faith of the saints. Now, a second beast is depicted, which is the image that is erected, which is the Roman Catholic Church. And I won't take time to argue that or go into it in great detail. Let me again go back to Halley's on page 724 with regard to this 13th chapter of Revelation. Chapter 13, verses 1 to 10, Halley's comment. This seems to be the beast which killed the two witnesses, 11.7, referring to Revelation 11.7, and which is still more fully described in chapter 17. The dragon, that is the devil, having failed to destroy the church by persecution, now installs himself in this beast to continue his war against the saints. The beast has the appearance of a leopard, a bear, and a lion, symbols which Daniel used for world power, and refers you back to Daniel 7, 3-6. Again, another comment, coalition of leopard beast and lamb beast, the leopard beast being the first beast of Revelation 13, and the lamb beast being the image of the beast, which is obviously masquerading as if Christian or Christ-like, but which is a satanic government. Leopard beast, the first one of Revelation 13, represents secular power, absolutely true. Lamb beast represents pretended Christian power, absolutely true. The dragon uniting them into one world power. So even as I say, a completely unscholarly Bible help you can pick up in any Bible bookstore recognizes who and what these beasts are. It is not a, a strange doctrine that we have concocted in the Church of God International. The beast is the Roman Empire, which became the Holy Roman Empire, which adopted names of blasphemy, which calls the leader in the, in the uh, so-called Basilica of St. Peter's, Holy Father, and who is supposed to make pronouncements that are infallible with regard to custom and doctrine when he speaks from his chair in uh, the place there right above where they claim Peter is buried at St. Peter's. And, of course, they, can, they claim a continuum of popes or a succession of popes right on down through history, which is utterly false, which is disproved by profane as well as clerical history. And they claim, of course, that Peter had the primacy, which is an absolute abominable lie and can be disproved in ten minutes to anyone with a mind to see. Acts 8.14 disproves that all by itself with no other verses in the Bible. But there are plenty of them which completely disprove it. But the holy, so-called holy Roman Empire, which is a blasphemous term, is right now awaiting a new revival. I've been talking about that in the past several personal appearance campaigns, and I've been talking about it in the last several television programs as well. The image of the beast is a lamb-like ecclesiastical system organized along the lines of the ancient pagan Roman Empire, which had the great diocese and the smaller diocese, which was ruled by the Senate and the Collegia, and today we find that in the College of Cardinals, and as you well know, the Catholics have the United States and all the countries of the world divided up into various dioceses, and they rule with a system of government from the top down with no checks or balances 
with only one man in control, and that is a satanic form of government. And yet the church has swallowed the idea that the only form of government that is God's form of government is one man at the top whose whims and whatever his passions, whatever his failings, well, we've just got to let God work that out. I happen to believe that those documents are a sacred document. I think God led those men. I know that God Almighty established the United States of America. Also know, and that's another sermon, take me an hour to prove it to you, and I think you can see very quickly by just simply looking around the world that the only place on the face of the good green earth where God's work could be done is in the United States of America. Just ask yourself, could God's work involving preaching whatever the Bible says without fear of jack-booted, bayonet-toting SS men crashing through these doors be carried out in any nation but the United States of America? Could it have been in 1936? Which nation in Europe would have been the best nation for God's work to be spreading out all over the world in Europe? Can you think of one? What about the language barrier? Why was Latin replaced by French, and why was French replaced by English, which is the world language today, the most common tongue of the entirety of humanity, where any nation, whether it's Japanese or Iranian, will send its businessmen to schools to learn English, including the Soviet Union? What about state possession of the media, state ownership, where in many nations there's only one official radio station, one official television station? That's controlled by the government. Here it's private. You can own one, you buy one, you got the money, buy a radio station. And put on there whatever you want to put on there. You can even get on there and spew out all kinds of ideas, including rabid criticisms of your own government in the United States of America. I tell you, there is nothing inherently evil in a democratic system of government, except that men are flawed. But I'll tell you, there is far greater evil in a one-man autocracy or an absolute monarchy because of the flaws in men than there are in a system of checks and balances. And let's never forget it, because that applies to the Church of God as well. Now, note this in Revelation 6, 9 to 10. There's something very important here with regard to the mark of the beast. It said. We see there that this great system is going to torture and is going to martyr and is going to put to death those who will not submit to worship of the beast, worship of the image of the beast, the receiving of the number, the mark, and the name. Now here in the sixth chapter of the book of Revelation, one of those successive seals revealed, if you'll just compare this in the companion Bible with Bullinger, you will see that it is so simple to see that when Christ said, first will come false Christ and false prophets, then will come wars and rumors of wars, then will come drought and famine and so on, that the progressive opening of the seals are revealed by Christ in Matthew 24, that the two fit absolutely together. The fifth seal, verse 8, I looked, I'm sorry, verse 9, and when he had opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls, Greek of Suke again, the lives of them that were slain for the word of God and for the testimony which they held. Now, let's notice these are martyrs in the past, people who were slain for their belief, their profession, and for the word of God. Not only the word of God, but something they openly voiced. What they said is a result of understanding the word of God. So they were preaching the gospel. They had not just a personal witness, but a testimony, and of course, 
That is what Jesus said. You shall be witnesses unto me in all the world. And they went out preaching Christ, who is the Savior, and so on. As we see in Acts 1, 2, 3, 4, the first chapters of the book on church history. White robes, well, let's look in metaphor what it says here, verse 10. They cried with a loud voice, saying, How long, O Lord, holy and true, do you not judge and avenge our blood on them that dwell on the earth? Now, here is John projected forward. Remember, he wrote this about 91, 92 A.D., right? Or whatever it's talking about, it's talking about something in the past, even before, perhaps, John. But actually, it is talking about the Middle Ages, because John is projected forward in time into that time called the Day of the Lord. And he sees these in metaphor, figuratively, as if they are crying out, just like we read in the book of Genesis, God saying, your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground when Cain slew Abel. And he said, where's your brother? Your brother's blood cries out. Now, blood doesn't have a mouth and blood doesn't make a sound. It's merely a metaphor, but it is used here in this same sense that the blood of these martyrs who were butchered, who were hung, who were stabbed and shot and burnt, and who were impaled and who were skinned alive, cries out for vengeance. How long, O Lord, holy and true, dost thou not judge and avenge our blood on them that dwell on the earth? And white robes were given unto every one of them as a symbol of absolute righteousness as well as a guarantee they are in God's kingdom. The kingdom is as good as given to them. And it was said unto them that they should rest yet a little season. They are the kind of people who understand, vengeance is mine, I will repay, saith the Lord. They don't try to take it into their own hands. Until their fellow servants also and their brethren should be killed as they were, should be fulfilled. Now, when we read in the 17th chapter of this future martyrdom of saints, who is it the beast and his image are going to put to death? We already read it, but refresh your memory. Over there in the 14th chapter, as well as the 13th, and causeth all who do not receive the mark of the beast to be put to death. He is going to butcher them for not receiving the mark of the beast. Now, what we're looking at here is the revealing of these dead who have been lying there in their graves for all of these many, many centuries, down through the Middle Ages, during the reign of men like Diocletian, before that, Nero himself, and after that, clear down to the days of Constantine, down during the centuries of the Quartodeciman controversy, down to the many, many years of the Inquisition of the Catholic Church in Spain, countless millions have been put to death all over Europe and Asia and the Mediterranean countries, I mean Asia Minor, of course, or the Middle East, down through many, many centuries for clinging to customs which that church called Jewish. The Quarto Deciman controversy was a controversy that arose over those who decided they wanted to continue to cling to those customs delivered to them from the apostles of observing the Lord's Supper or the Passover, as we call it, but it's referred to by Paul in the 11th chapter, 1 Corinthians, the 11th, uh, I should say, chapter, 1 Corinthians 11, as the Lord's Supper. And they clung to the observance of it on the 14th of Nisan. It is not the Quinto Deciman controversy in history. It's mentioned here in Bacciochi's book. Many, many times, the Quarto Decimus. This is his book on From Sabbath to Sunday, which I would urge everyone to read, which is an absolute mind-boggling effort. And there is not a page, not a paragraph you don't want to underline because it's so chock-full of stunning information. The greatest documentation of how the Roman Catholic Church enforced Sunday observance on the church and on millions of people that has ever been documented, I think, in all of history. It's a historical investigation of the rise of Sunday observance in early Christianity and is one of the most scholarly works you will ever read. 
And it was researched in the Vatican, by the way, in the Vatican Library in Rome. And I want to just quote a little bit from it in a few moments. So the interesting thing that we're coming to see here is that whatever the mark of the beast may prove to be in the future, it is something which has been around for a very long time. It is something which was attempted to be imposed upon people down through the Middle Ages. It is something which cost people their lives to choose between one or the other for apparently centuries. And they're told to rest until their fellow servants and their brethren should also be killed as they were killed. Now let's go back to Revelation, the 14th chapter, and notice what it says again in beginning in verse 9 through 12. The third angel followed them, saying with a loud voice, If any man worship the beast and his image, and receive his mark in his forehead or in his hand, the same shall drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is poured out without mixture into the cup of his indignation, and he shall be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. Notice verse 12, as I said, in direct juxtaposition, you've got two opposites here. Those that are going to observe the mark of the beast are going to give in to it, receive it willingly in the forehead, which is with your will or your volition, and in the hand, which is a symbol of your cooperation and your willingness to work for it. Here is the patience of the saints. Here are they that keep the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus. I want you to go all the way back to the book of Exodus for a moment, to the 16th chapter, and take a look at what God said anciently involving his Sabbath day. Exodus, the 16th chapter, he said in verse 4 to Moses, Behold, I will rain bread from heaven for you, and the people shall go out and gather a certain rate every day, that I may test them, prove them, try them, whether they will walk in my law or no. All right, a test was coming up, a trial. Are they going to keep my law or not? And there was a method that he utilized to prove whether or not they were going to keep his law. Then Moses said, verse 23, This is that which the Eternal has said, Tomorrow is the rest of the holy Sabbath unto the Eternal. Bake that which you will bake today, and seethe or broil or boil that which you will seethe, and that which remains over lay up for you to be kept until the morning. And they laid it up till the morning as Moses bade, and it did not sink, neither was there any worm therein. And Moses said, Eat that today, for today is a Sabbath unto the Eternal, not unto the Jews. These were all the house of Israel, all the tribes of Israel. Six days shall you gather it, but on the seventh day, which is the Sabbath, in it there shall be none. Well, some of them went out on the seventh day. Typical. Verse 28, very important verse in the Bible. Because notice, this is being read, and this occurs before the giving of the Decalogue on Mount Sinai. Before the mountain smoked. Before Moses went up to the mountain. Before he ever departed the camp. This happens at the foot of the mountain as they are drawing near in their wanderings in Sinai. And the Bible says, God said to them, through Moses, How long refuse you to keep my commandments and my laws? Do the commandments of God then antedate Sinai? And the answer is, absolutely, yes, they do. Genesis thirteen thirteen: the men of Sodom were sinners exceedingly before the eternal. What is sin? First John 3, 4. It is the transgression of God's law. Romans 5, 14. Where no transgression is, where no law is, there is no transgression. It's just that simple. A, B, C. The commandments existed. Now notice the 18th uh, chapter. Not the 18th, I'm sorry. 
Well, I, I don't want to go through all of that. I just don't, don't want to take time. But also in chapter 19, verse 5, about keeping the covenant and the peculiar treasure. But I want to skip ahead now to the 31st chapter of the book of Exodus. Exodus 31. The Eternal spoke to Moses, verse 12, saying, Speak thou also unto the children of Israel, saying, Verily, my Sabbath you shall keep, for it is a sign between me and you throughout your generation, that you may know that I am the Eternal that does sanctify you, or set you apart, make you different, make you separate from other people. You shall keep the Sabbath, therefore, for it is holy unto you. Everyone that defiles it shall surely be put to death. Whosoever doeth any work therein, that soul shall be cut off among, among his people. Pause for a moment, get your bearings, remember something very important. John, the first chapter, the Gospel of John, Hebrews, the first chapter, absolutely indelibly prove that the individual doing this speaking to Moses is that member of the Godhead who became Jesus Christ of Nazareth of the New Testament. He is the God who dealt with Moses. Now, he is also the one who said in the book of Malachi, I change not, therefore are you sons of Jacob not consumed. He is also the one of whom it is said in Hebrews 13, 8, Jesus Christ, the same yesterday, that's back here in Exodus, today, that's right now, and forever. He does not change. Same personality, same laws. He doesn't have two different routes by which you get to God's kingdom. He doesn't have ten routes or twenty routes or four hundred different routes or route if you prefer or methods, or ways by which people can just go along and convince themselves, well, I'm good, and other people are good, and I, I like you, so uh, I'm a Catholic, but you're a Methodist, but we'll all be there together. We're just getting there by different routes, different routes. People like to, to feel comfortable with their beliefs, and they like to be comfortable when they talk about religion. They don't want to hurt somebody's feelings, so they have all these disclaimers that they use before they begin to talk about religion. But Almighty God, the one who is now the Jesus Christ that we know from the New Testament, the same individual who wrote the Ten Commandments with his own finger, is saying in verse 14, You shall keep the Sabbath therefore, for it is holy unto you. Everyone that defiles it shall surely be put to death. Is there any doubt in anyone's mind that the death penalty was imposed upon ancient Israelites for Sabbath breaking? What do you suppose the penalty is today? It's death. It isn't a slap on the wrist. It is not garnishing your wages. It isn't causing your car to stop. It's not amputating your little finger. It is death. That's the penalty for Sabbath breaking. It's always been so, and it will always be so. Six days may work be done, but in the seventh is the Sabbath of rest, holy to the eternal. Whosoever doeth any work in the Sabbath day, he shall surely be put to death. And they carried it out forthwith on the spot when people broke the Sabbath day then and there. Wherefore, the children of Israel shall keep the Sabbath to observe the Sabbath throughout their generations for a perpetual covenant. It is a sign between me and the children of Israel forever. For in six days the Eternal made heaven and earth, and on the seventh day he rested and was refreshed. Twice in this passage, he says in verse 13, it is a sign between me and you throughout your generations. Verse 17, it is a sign. Now, what is a sign? Well, a sign is a symbol. A sign is a label. If there's a sign on the loaf of bread, it's the label. If it is a sign or a label or a symbol above the door, it's something you read, and it is an identifying mark. It's a series of characters, either Hebrew or Greek or Arabic or Roman or English. 
that to your brain tells you, oh, that is this store or that store or this number on that house, it identifies something. A sign identifies. It is therefore an identifying mark by which Almighty God knows his own. Now, the sign, the only identifying sign that Almighty God ever put upon his people, that is that, in, in a sense, of a physical nature, although it is not, not physical about observing the Sabbath day, is God's Sabbath. I know that receiving God's Holy Spirit is the spiritual proof that we are God's children, but you cannot receive God's Holy Spirit unless you repent of breaking the Sabbath, which is the test commandment of all of the Ten Commandments, the one most important commandment that Almighty God zeroed right in on and tested them on time and time again, the one commandment that was always the quickest one for them to break, when an evil king came along, about the first thing they did was deny the Sabbath and the annual holy day. When they got back, a righteous king came in and effected some kind of a great restoration. It was always the Sabbath and the annual holy days, the weekly and the annual Sabbath, which revealed that God is the Creator. They are the little microcosm, even in the week, the, sixth, uh, the cycle of the week, of God's 7,000-year plan. The Sabbath day is a picture of the millennial rest of the kingdom of God, and the annual holy days, which were given to the church when the church was established, are a progressive revelation through the seasons of the plan and the purpose of God, of what salvation is all about. Notice in verse 9 and 10 of Revelation, the sixth chapter, well, we read that, about how these martyrs are saying, how long, O eternal, do you not avenge our blood that is upon the earth, and so on. I want to go now to Bacciochi's book briefly, and uh, first of all, let me see. I want to read something with regard to Rome and Easter, just very quickly, and then another quote. The origin of Easter Sunday. The historian Eusebius is on page 198 of Bacciochi's book, and he lived from 260 to about 340 A.D., provides a valuable dossier of documents regarding the controversy which flared up in the second century over the date for the celebration of the Passover. There were, of course, two protagonists of the controversy. On the one side, Bishop Victor of Rome, who lived from 189 to 199, that, uh, that is when he reigned, championed the Easter Sunday custom. In other words, the celebration of the feast on the Sunday usually following the date of the Jewish Passover, and threatened to excommunicate the recalcitrant Christian communities of the province of Asia, where you see the Apostle Paul was so busy, which refused to follow his instruction. On the other side, Polycrates, bishop of Ephesus, the big city where Paul spent so much time, and the Ephesian church that is congratulated in the first letter that we read of in Revelation, the second chapter, and representative of the Asian churches, strongly advocated the traditional Passover date of Nisan 14. Would people please listen? Not the 15th. You don't find people being put to death for clinging to the 15th down through history. We have some Johnny-come-lately Latter-day people that have the idea that they've got to observe the Passover on the 15th when people were killed for observing it on the 14th for centuries. Why did God allow that to happen? They all died in vain? They had a wrong date? Well, that's something I won't go off into, but it does bug you sometimes. You look in history, it's so plain advocated the traditional date of Passover on Nisan 14th, commonly called Quarto Deciman Passover. Polycrates, claiming to possess the genuine apostolic tradition transmitted to him by the apostles Philip and John, refused to be frightened into submission by the threats of Victor of Rome. Now, there's a great deal more in this book, and I can only take a couple of moments, but suffice it to say, Mr. Dart has covered this in some comments and sermons in the past. 
that one of the great motivations for all of this in the early Romish church was to get as far away as they could from anything and everything that smacked of Jewish. And there were political reasons, too, why some of the so-called Christians who were Gentiles under the threat of martyrdom by some of these evil Roman emperors wanted to completely disassociate themselves from anything Jewish and make it appear to the Roman emperors and the popes that they were Gentile Christians, New Testament Christians, observing New Testament customs. It was so easy for these tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands, millions of Gentiles who were solar worshippers, sun worshippers, Constantine himself, whose symbol of office was a solar wheel, who allegedly became converted to Christianity, who continued that very same symbol and himself insisted that the bishops meet together in a council of Laodicea and settle this business of the Easter and the Paschal controversy. And so, of course, it was such a natural and an easy thing to embrace the day of the sun, Sunday, the day they falsely supposed Christ was resurrected when, in fact, he was ascending to heaven on a Sunday, but he was resurrected on a late Sabbath afternoon, and to embrace that idea as the day when Christians generally meet together to celebrate the resurrection of the Lord and to completely disassociate themselves from anything that was Jewish. Here is a statement regarding the anti-Judaic hostilities that were found in Rome. Justin Martyr is, of course, in a dialogue with Trifo. He has a very negative evaluation of Judaism and a lot of vehement attacks against the Jews. This is page 228 of Samuel Batiochi's book. And he said here, in quoting, of course, what Justin Martyr said, You have spared no effort in disseminating in every land bitter, dark, and unjust accusations against the only guiltless and just light sent to men by God. This is his indictment against the Jews. The other nations have not treated Christ and us, his followers, as unjustly as have you Jews, who indeed are the very instigators of that evil opinion that they of the just one and of us his disciples, they have of the just one and of us his disciples, you are to blame not only for your own wickedness but also for that of others. Justin said this, to the utmost of your power, you dishonor and curse in your synagogues all those who believe in Christ. In your synagogues you curse all those who through them have become Christians, and the Gentiles put into effect your curse by killing all those who merely admit that they are Christians. Bacciocci says, this repudiation and degradation of the Sabbath presupposes the adoption of a new day of worship. What better way to evidence the Christians' distinction from the Jews than by adopting a different day of worship? It is a fact worth noting that in his exposition of the Christian worship to the Emperor Antonius Pius, Justin twice underlines that the assembly of the Christians took place, quote, on the day of the sun, end quote. Now, I don't have further time. I've got to conclude this as quickly as I can, but almost every paragraph of this book you want to underline, because it is just so mind-boggling, the tremendous amount of research the man has done to document how the Sunday worship and Easter and so on was gradually imposed upon people until it became the norm, not only in the Roman Catholic world, but also in the Protestant world of today. The plain, simple truth about this all is, and I want to conclude this very, very quickly, that the mark of the beast is something which you must consciously choose or consciously reject. It is made very, very clear. Now, I have speculated that as a type, it may well be that the monetary standard of the coming common market, or I should say the United States of Europe, 
because I know that two nations in Europe already have money or currency which is merely labeled the mark. That's Germany and France. Uh, the franc means mark and mark means mark. In the United States we have what is used to be called a valley. It was from a German valley, the T-H-A-L-E or the Thaler, which became corrupted to dollar, which is really a meaningless term. But over there they have a different standard. And because it does have something to do with whether you're, not, you're able to buy or to sell, we have thought for many, many years it may eventually be the imposition of a universal calendar. It may be once again that an edict will go out but that any Sabbath keeping is going to be a cause for literal martyrdom, that a person will be put to death if he is found Judaizing by observing a seven-day Sabbath or trying to observe the Passover on the 14th. That may be something which will yet be imposed by a church-state system which is to emerge in this world in the days before the intervention of God and during the time of the Great Tribulation. One thing is sure, they are not going to martyr people that, like, if you go down here to the mall today and you wander around among Baptists and Methodists and Catholics and Lutherans and Episcopalians, how do you know who's who? How in the world do you tell one from another? How are they going to spot you? And, of course, in the United States of America, uh, because of a completely different society, you can't claim that circumcision is the way by which everybody's going to be singled out. Let's out all the women, probably an awful lot of the men. How are they going to know? If it is not something which is ecclesiastical and which is enforced upon people by the civil state, which is very clear in the descriptions of how it is that this great image of the beast uses the power of the beast to put to death, causes that all that will not worship the beast and its image should be put to death. He doesn't do it himself. He causes that they should be put to death. He uses the Roman civil power or the power of the coming United States of Europe. So these concepts that are masquerading today in all kinds of cheap religious literature about, as I said, the striations on a package that you check out in the supermarket or a plastic credit card or somebody holding you down and tattooing invisible ink in your forehead or stamping your or putting a tattoo under the skin on your right hand. Nonsense. It doesn't matter if 16 big men held down everybody in this room and tattooed the biggest bunch of numbers or a swastika or the old cross or whatever on your forehead, could that take your salvation away from you? It's what happens in here. It's in your mind, in your brain, in your heart, as we say, that salvation resides. What you do with your will. No man, even motivated by Satan the devil or the beast power, has the power or the authority to rob you of your spiritual salvation. The mark of the beast is something which is eventually to be imposed forcibly upon people, and they're going to worship it. Most people are going to joyously receive it, but it's also something which killed people during the Middle Ages, so it's something that has been around for a very, very long time. Even though I might see a shadowy secondary or tertiary meaning of some of these same things having to do with the monetary standard of the European governments or having to do with certain symbolism that may be used by them, I still believe the strongest possible argument is that the entire structure and liturgy of the Roman Catholic Church as adopted by her many prostitute daughters who came out in protest of Sunday, of Easter, of the entire doctrine of the Trinity and the whole scheme of doctrine of the Roman Catholic Church represents the mark of the beast. The mark of God, the stamp of God, the label, the sign of God down through all generations, 
between God and his people is the weekly Sabbath day you can't get around. Then what is that mark that took the lives of people during the Middle Ages? It isn't some mysterious thing having to do with some computer in Belgium, is it? Because they lost their lives back then for refusing to go along with the same system. And their fellow servants are yet to be martyred in the future, it says very clearly. And they're going to be martyred for what? For refusing to accept the mark of the beast. And they're going to love not their lives unto the death, and therefore, if they are martyred, they will be saved spiritually, even if they lose their lives physically. So I think maybe we can just put to rest these weird concepts that I see coming along in our mail every now and then about credit cards or a tattoo on your forehead or invisible ink or a national identity card or something of that nature. Because the mark of the beast, I verily believe, may well be Sunday. Thank God that we have made a conscious choice and we observe God's Sabbath.